One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. It's been an interesting week on the economic and political front, and we're going to cover some of those issues in this podcast. We had German growth for the first quarter revised down. We had U.S. growth for the first quarter revised in an upward direction. We had data on U.S. corporate profits, which sort of flies in the face of what we were talking about last week to some extent about the record level of dividends that was paid. So I want to talk about that. We had stellar employment data out of Ireland for the first quarter of the year. Some really interesting nuggets contained within that report. And then we have the ongoing energy discussion. We've had developments in the United Kingdom. You want to talk about that. I want to talk about what's happening to electricity prices in this country. And finally, I think we should revisit something we discussed in the last podcast, which attracted um, a record level of response, really, and that is the whole issue around working from home. So I think that warrants um, another bit of discussion. And I think it does certainly lay the basis for um, a lot of work and research in this area um, into the future. But Chris, if I may start off with the, the, the growth data we got for Germany and the United States, um, German growth in the first quarter was revised down to minus 0.3%. That was a decline of 0.3% during the quarter, followed a decline of 0.5% in the final quarter of last year. So that's two successive quarters of negative growth, which technically um, qualifies as a recession. And the key element of weakness in the German economy in the first quarter has been the consumer. Um, Consumer spending fell by a significant 1.2%. And um, that is being attributed to the cost of living pressures and the rising interest rates that we're seeing feeding through from the European Central Bank. Um, In contrast, in the United States in the first quarter, uh, growth was revised up from an initial report of plus 1.1 to 1.3%. So the US economy showing a little bit more growth. And I think in marked contrast to what's happening in Germany, Um, consumer spending remains pretty vibrant in the United States. So 
contrasting um, pictures there, but I, I suppose the important thing really from a European perspective is that Europe's largest economy is now technically in recession. And that's obviously going to um, reduce the overall Eurozone growth number for the first and second quarters. What do you think? Well, I saw on Twitter, I think it was, somebody having a go at Martin Sanbu, who's the FT commentator that I referenced last time, when he was talking about how well Germany had done uh, weathering the storm of higher natural gas and other energy prices. Some economics professor had a right old go at him saying, well, that comment didn't last very long, did it? Um, didn't weather very well. I think we need to explore that just a little bit. What Martin Sandby was arguing was that the, the, the German economy had indeed come through the higher gas price thing very, very well and had adjusted in a very flexible meaningful way. The fact that Germany has entered into a recession doesn't invalidate what Martin was saying in the way that this economics professor was having a go at him about. What I think Germany is suffering from is the fact that such a high proportion of its economy is in manufacturers. And in particular, its manufactured exports are suffering. And so I think that's a China story rather than an energy price story. It's a world trade story rather than an energy price story. And I think that's just part of the geopolitical thing that I keep banging on about, that I will talk about incessantly, I suspect, over the next few months, if not longer, because I think big shifts, huge shifts are going on with respect to the world economy, how it's organized itself, the de-risking thing that the Americans talk about, their exposure to China. The Chinese call it decoupling and they don't like it. It's an, a nuanced difference, if you like, but it's massive. And I think that Germany is one of the consequences, the sufferers from all of this and uh, its exports, its high proportion of its economy that are manufacturers explains the, the recession story. It's not a big deal in the sense that the numbers aren't huge. It's not a massive recession. German consumers are never very vibrant at the best of times. If you look at the long run data, Jim, it's, it's, not, it's not a consumer economy. It's a building economy. And so when manufactured uh, world trade suffers, Germany is going to be an outlier in terms of the economy that suffers the most. So that's my take on it. As you've alluded to several times, analysis of the ongoing analysis of the German export story, I think will tell us a lot about what's happening in terms of the structural shift in the global economy and particularly the issue um, relating to China. Um, Chris, last week we, or our last podcast, we spoke about um, Janice Henderson, a US fund manager, you know, reported that the dividends of the top 1,200 companies in the world reached a record high in the first quarter of the year. Um, late last week, the Bureau of Economic Analysis published data on corporate profits for the first quarter in the United States. And it estimates that they fell by 6.8% in the quarter to 2.3 trillion. Um, the expectation was for a very, very modest decline. Uh, and to put this in context, this is the lowest level of corporate profits since the second quarter of 2021. And the decline we saw in the first quarter was the largest decrease since the first quarter of 2020, which, of course, was the quarter when the COVID pandemic was declared by the World Health Organization. One month's or one quarter's data, you can't read a lot into it, but... 
um, definitely pressure, no surprises there because particularly of what's happening on the interest rate side, but also what's happening global tra- trade, as you've alluded to. And I, and I suppose from a selfish Irish perspective, it will be interesting to see how this pressure on U.S. core profits, U.S. corporate profits, excuse me, feeds through into corporate profit tax take here in Ireland. Uh, because we've all we've always said that every time we saw bumper profits being reported in the states, we rubbed our hands here in Ireland. I think that there's lots of smoke and mirrors going on here. And as you say, I wouldn't read too much into one quarter's numbers. And the Bureau of Economic Analysis measures profits differently to the way the stock market measures profits. There are all sorts of uh, accounting shenanigans going on. So we need to be careful not to overinterpret. It might well be that some of the profits are overseas, hidden overseas in the way that US companies do. Pharmaceutical companies, as we know, sell most of their products in the United States, or at least the, the, the higher margin stuff is sold in the United States, and yet most of their profits are declared overseas. So the way in which official statistics capture all of this cross-border stuff does, uh, I think, mean that these numbers fluctuate for, for, for noisy reasons rather than fundamental reasons. I don't sense there's been any great collapse in US corporate profitability. That said, one of the things that's going on, of course, is that interest expenses for US companies are going up. That is definitely a drag on profits um, The uh, of certainly some sectors. Um, it, it helps the financial sector and hurts the non-financial sector. So that, that there are lots of sectoral shifts. But the biggest sectoral shift, of course, is the profitability of the energy nexus. All of the energy companies are making out like bandits, as I keep saying, and anybody that consumes a lot of energy, manufacturers in particular, will be suffering higher costs. So, you know, I, I think that, yeah, the, the great profits growth story in the United States has come to an end. But does it portend a big collapse? I think the driver of that will be the macro economy and whether or not you think the US is heading into a recession. If we get the US recession that everybody seems to be talking about still, but as you rightly say earlier on, uh, it's not in the numbers. And this is a theme that we've been banging on about really since the turn of the year as we approach mid-year. Um, the US recession is still very much in the forecast, not in the numbers. But if it does start to appear in the numbers, that's when we'll get the US profit story. That's my take on it, Jim. OK, interesting, Chris. Um, I noticed the US UK retail sales came in pretty strongly um, on Friday. Um, and there is a an economic subscription service that I look at and they've been very, very bearish on the UK economy and indeed on Europe and the States for the last 12 months. But in response to the UK strong retail sales number, uh, they have sort of said, well, we're, we're a bit surprised. We'd forecast something a bit weaker, uh, but it's only a matter of time before we see consumer spending weakening significantly in the UK economy. Um, it's, it's, it's quite amazing the way the negative narrative has not been matched by the statistics. And we've spoken about this many times, but it continues to be the case that actually economic activity everywhere, um, with the possible exception of Germany, which we've just discussed, is actually proving a little bit more resilient than would have been expected. So I think forecasters generally are struggling big time at the moment to figure out what's happening in the 
various macro economies around the world. And, and, and of course, that feeds into the confusion for central bankers, because um, despite all the tightening we've seen over the last 15 months in different jurisdictions, um, central bankers are still very uncomfortable with the strength of labour markets, with the general resilience of economic activity. So um, it does suggest that um, interest rate increases remain on the agenda everywhere for the foreseeable future. And indeed, Chris, we got labour market data for Ireland related to the first quarter of this year from the Central Statistics Office. And um, every employment report I've spoken about on a quarterly basis for the last couple of years has been alluding to the fact that we've achieved a new record level of employment in the economy. And indeed, in the first quarter, that continues to be the case. Um, In the year to the first quarter, there was an increase of 102,700 or 4.1% in total employment. And we now have 2.608 million people working in the economy, uh, which is by far the highest level of employment we've ever seen in this country. Um, There was growth of 4% in male employment and 4.2% in female employment. And as I like to do, Chris, I delved into the statistics just to see, you know, what's happening at a gender level, for example. And it's interesting looking at the employment rate for females aged between 15 and 64. It reached 69.2% in the first quarter of this year. And to put that in context, that is the highest female participation rate we've seen in Ireland since this CSO series began back in the first quarter of 1998. Um, And the employment rate for males is at 78.1%, which is also a record. Um, We have 110,700 people unemployed, which equates to 4.1% unemployment rate down from 4.8% last year. So this is an incredibly strong story, you know, whatever way you look at it. It certainly belies the sort of failed state narrative that many politicians and others like to throw out there on a regular basis. Um, If we look at the sectoral breakdown in the year to the first quarter, um, you know, despite the pressure for increased output from the construction sector, particularly in residential housing, there was an increase of just 1,500 people employed in construction. Um, And that, I think, more than anything else, reflects the fact that the construction sector actually is struggling to find workers. So that small increase in construction employment is not reflecting necessarily weakness in the construction sector. I think it's reflecting the scarcity of labour. But employment in the retail sector up by over 29,000 accommodation and food services up by 8,800. And of course, employment in the health sector up by a very, very strong 22,600. So a lot of strong sector stuff going going on there. And it tells us that this employment boom we've seen over recent years is from a sector perspective, very broadly based across the economy. One figure that kind of surprises me a little bit, um, and I went back this morning to recheck to make sure I hadn't misread it, but employment in the ICT sector, that's technology, um, in the first quarter of this year was 5,000 higher than a year earlier. So wow. that, 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 that is my understanding. There's, there's something interesting going on there. Um, and we, we saw 
over the past week, Meta announcing further job layoffs in the technology sector. But I do get the sense and I've been getting this sense from um, recruitment agencies for some time now that a lot of the workers that are being laid off in the big tech companies are actually being soaked up by other companies across the economy who actually could not uh, compete with the big tech companies in recent years for labor. So it's it's a great story. Um, and I suppose from a business perspective here, it's the ongoing challenge of um, recruitment and retention and upward pressure on wages being a significant business challenge. And of course, it also feeds into the working from home story that we're going to cover a little bit later on in this podcast. Absolutely. Why, why don't we do that now, Jim? Because I think it's a nice segue into working from home. Because as you said at the top of the show, uh, we got reaction to our last podcast where we did briefly discuss working from home in various ways. We got the strongest reaction I think we've gotten a long time by way of listener comments and various bits of feedback in, from various ways, both on the Substack site and direct emails and tweets and all the rest of it to that working from home segment. And the interesting thing was firstly, the number of comments that we got. Secondly, they were 100% in one direction, which is that they were all emphatically in favour of working from home. They think it is unambiguously a good thing from both their perspective and their employer's perspective, interestingly. They may or may not be right in that regard, and I'll talk a little bit about that. The thing about working from home is that it's very, very complicated in terms of trying to assess its overall macroeconomic impact. There are so many different moving parts. There's the benefit that you get from saving money on commuting. There's the time saved that you could you then can spend working or not, as the case may be. And so the choices people are making about how they spend the saved time are very important, both for the output and productivity statistics. Uh, socially, it's important because it means parents get to spend more time, potentially at least with their children. And that was mentioned several times by various commenters. There's the environmental consequences of people not commuting, um, that those need to be measured. The interesting thing, of course, is that employers, with some exceptions, are trying very hard to get people back into the office. And for good or ill, um, for perhaps reasons that I don't fully understand that need further research, employers say that productivity is being harmed by working from home. I think the jury's still out on that one, and I don't think that uh, they are necessarily right but I think we don't know is the, is the answer to this. So there are many, many different moving parts to this that warrant further, further research. But it is worth remarking that in a tight labor market, the power in this exchange between employers and employees is very much at the moment with employees. All of those labor market statistics that you mentioned there feed straight into this narrative, which is that the power is with the worker. So when the boss says to the employee, come in five days a week, potentially the employee can say, sling your hook. If you don't let me work from home in the way that I want to, I'll get another job. And at the moment, clearly people can. I think the real test of this, or one real test of this, is going to come if and when we get a proper economic slowdown and the balance of power shifts from employees to employers. Then it'll be very interesting to observe what happens then. That appears from the data that you just described to be a long way off, thankfully, uh, but at the moment, we've got a very interesting dynamic. The, the two sides of the employment relationship very much opposed to each other in terms of their views. 
Um, and I think that this is going to be an ongoing discussion that you and I are going to have. And as you say, I think we should go away and do quite a lot of work on this to see what evidence there is to back up the various sides of the debate. Um, and I think you've got something to say about your position in all of this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Yeah, one of the things that struck me from um, a lot of the response we got was the the notion that I'm very much in favour of working in the office and and that, you know, people shouldn't be working from home. Um, That that is certainly not the situation because I buy all of the positive arguments about working from home that you have elucidated there in the last few minutes. But I think there is another side to the story. Um, you know, you have to think about, well, you, you've mentioned the whole productivity thing and it, it'll, it'll take some time for the data to emerge on the impact of that. But some employers have a view on that. But I, uh, what I was talking about was a few other issues about um, the impact of city centre businesses, you know, cafes, restaurants who do well at lunchtime after work and so on. Um, they are definitely suffering as a result of this. And as somebody pointed out, um, you know, workers or businesses have no responsibility to um, support those businesses. So this is just, you know, something that happens. But fine, I accept that. But I was stating it as a fact that city centre businesses are suffering as a result of this. But of course, businesses in suburban areas where people are working from home from um, obviously might benefit from people being in the neighbourhood more often. And the other thing I spoke about was the impact on younger workers, particularly. And, um, you know, I I think for younger workers starting off in a job, being part of a team, um, the positive energy that comes from working around other people, the exchange of ideas and all of that stuff. um, I worry about the impact that might have on younger workers. You know, will they get the sort of development and career progression that they want or that they deserve? Um, And I don't know what the answer is, but I'm concerned about it. But I certainly was not stating a preference one way or the other. What I was saying is that there are two sides to this story. Both sides need to be taken into consideration. And I suppose what falls out of that is that some sort of hybrid model um, appears to be the the best outcome for many people. Um, and it's it's funny, every morning I go out very early for a walk in the neighbourhood here and um, I always notice that on a Friday, traffic is significantly lighter than the other mornings of the week. And, you know, certainly a lot of people are making the decision to work from home on a Friday. So I, I presume that is a good thing. But there are a number of different facets to this story. And as you said, Chris, I think it's something that we should try and do some more work on. 
get access to research exactly or you know just to see what is going on if i might just make uh, some comments about mentoring which you've rightly raised and raised in a very thoughtful way so i've gone off and thought about it myself and reflected on it from a personal perspective and it's always uh, tricky to argue from the personal to the general but when I think about the good mentors I've had and the very poor mentors that I've had, the, the, the crap bosses, the good bosses, I think on balance throughout my career, I've generally had uh, bosses that I didn't particularly admire. Um, there have been some that I have, but in the majority, I think they've been very poor. And I've experienced that thing of people working for people who have been promoted way beyond their abilities. And in the days of the busy office that we all have worked in these days, uh, mentoring is often noticeable more by its absence than the reality of it. It, it. I I don't know how typical those experiences are, but if they are, I think that what this means is that um, mentoring is something that isn't going to be a random process, whether or not you get a good team around you or above you to teach you, to, to help you learn. It becomes something that um, the individual can perhaps take more control over and that the individual sits there in their home office and say, right, I need to develop skills. I need to widen my experience base and actually to develop a plan, a strategy for acquiring those new skills um, and new abilities rather than it being some random process depending on who they're sitting next to in the office. So in a way, from that perspective, I can see this as a good thing from the, the career progression, uh, the necessary knowledge perspective of the worker. It's just a thought, Jim. No, it's, 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 it's really interesting because I, I would share your experience. Um, I've had some awful bosses in my time um, and I've had some really good ones that I learned a lot from and that I certainly valued meeting on a daily basis, getting advice from. Uh, but perhaps there are other ways of doing it. But I, I still think it is something that needs to be put into this particular equation. I have no doubt, Chris, we will revisit this again because um, it is an evolving story and as you say the really interesting pivot will come when the labour market starts to move in the other direction as one assumes it, it eventually will because that's the nature of economic and labour market cycles uh, but when the power starts to shift in the other direction it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, one recruiter told me recently about interviewing a guy for a job and he was told that he'd be expected to come into the office two days a week. And his response was, will I get paid extra for that? Um, so that just shows you where the balance of power um, lies at this point. The answer that person got was not piss off. You're certainly not getting paid extra to come into the office. It's just um, part of the contract we expect you to sign. And if you don't, so be it. Chris, on the energy front, um, we've had a reduction in the price cap in the UK energy market. You're not happy? No, I'm not. The uh, energy regulator in the UK uh, now four times a year sets a cap on the unit price of gas and electricity. Um, people don't understand what this means. Uh, the newspapers report that the cap on energy bills for a typical household in the UK will now be just over £2,000 a year. Uh, your bill can be still multiples of that. If you have a swimming pool and a 10-bedroomed house, it will be multiples of that. Um, if you have a one-bedroom flat that's well insulated and energy efficient, it will be less than that. It's a cap on the unit price of electricity and gas. 
So if you consume lots of units, your bills will be high. If you consume lower than average units, your bill will be less than that. But it's a 17% reduction in the cap. So that's an average reduction of 17% in UK household bills. And uh, they do this, I think, for a number of reasons. Um, and I think that, th that those reasons are very poor to the point where I wonder what the point of the regulator actually is. Uh, the, the, as, we, as we constantly say, Jim, um, the price of natural gas on the wholesale markets in Europe peaked at around €350 Euros a kilowatt hour last summer. 350 This morning, they're trading at 25 So that's a lot uh, lower. That's a much bigger decrease than 17%. And I know that there isn't a one-for-one -one mapping between the regulated price of gas and the wholesale price of gas, but it, that, that's a very big gap. It's also the case that uh, electricity prices, wholesale electricity prices, have collapsed around Europe, including the UK, um, by a lot. So I'm, I'm looking at um, natural gas prices in the UK now that aren't that different to where, to where they were um, 10 years ago, for example. So I wonder why our bills are now significantly still higher and why the regulator is saying that they expect high energy bills for years to come. Uh, I think the honest answer is I don't know why the regulator is behaving in this way. I may have got it completely ways, and that all of the lags in the system um, mean that, yes, energy prices will fall, but they, they have to take, it has to take time, and I certainly accept that. But there's something else going on, I think, and I think it's called regulatory capture. One of the things the regulator has been commenting on only today has been one of the big energy companies in the UK is called Octopus, and they bought an energy company called Bulb, and Bulb failed. And there were lots of these energy suppliers. As a result of deregulation, we got loads of them in the UK that failed because they were not well run. They, they managed their business very, very badly. They became unprofitable, particularly when energy prices spiked, and they had to be either bailed out by the government or taken over by companies like Octopus. The regulators pointed out that Octopus is still a loss-making and it, it owes the taxpayer about a billion pounds for its takeover of bulb. And there is some question mark about whether the taxpayer will ever get its one billion back. So it's still the case that the regulator is worried about this, the profitability, the sustainability of the energy supply model in the UK about those energy companies. So what, what I think is happening, or at least an element of what is happening is that the regulator is protecting the profitability of the energy companies at the expense of the consumer because it doesn't want a repeat of last year's uh, episodes where several companies went to the wall threatening um, households with their own energy supplies going bust and all that kind of thing and taxpayer bailouts. So you, so in a way that's understandable because you could say that's the regulator's job to make sure that the energy companies stay in business. But for my money, that's poor, poor regulation. The right way to think about regulation in this particular case, and I think in all cases, is to make sure that the companies that you're regulating are well run and that they're run on a sustainable basis. You don't do that by saying, OK, however badly run you are, we're going to give you high prices that you can charge the consumer, high profit margins that you can inflict on the consumer in order to protect your poor business practices. If that's going on, and I only have a suspicion that's going on, I don't know for sure, but I, I think it is going on to an extent, that really is crap regulation. And that is uh, regulatory capture, in my opinion, the regulator not doing its job 
acting on behalf of the producers rather than the consumers of energy. The natural gas story is actually absolutely fascinating, both in the UK and a European context. But the whole energy nexus is fascinating. You know, Jim, in the first quarter, I'm going to do what you do. I'm going to talk about some numbers. Um, wind power overtook gas to become the UK's main source of electricity in the first quarter of 2023. A third of the UK's electricity now comes from wind farms, compared with just over 30% from natural gas-fired power stations. Now, one of the interesting things about that, of course, is that um, wind uh, uh, electricity is the marginal cost of that is next to zero. So let's let, there's that discussion about why we are still being driven by, by the gas price. Um, the gas price is collapsed, as I have already sa- said. And the one of the reasons why you, European, including UK gas prices, have collapsed is that US gas is coming into the UK. The UK was the top destination for US liquefied natural gas supplies, LNG supplies, for the fifth month in a row in March. And so with inventories of gas in the UK above average, and the fact that they haven't got enough storage facilities for this stuff, guess what's happening? The UK is becoming a big gas exporter to Europe again. Um, it's been before and it's happening again. So, um, you know, there, there are all these dynamics going on, pushing down the gas price because there's... Uh, the market is being flooded with overseas LNG, particularly from the States in the case of the UK. And we're in the summer, so the price is now falling, not by a little bit every day, but a lot. So uh, I think that we're being ripped off, Jim, and I suspect you are in Ireland too. Well, um, I looked at my own electricity bill and uh, I certainly don't see any indication that there has been a decline in prices. <clears throat> but these bills are really difficult to interpret anyway. But I looked at the CSO's um, detailed consumer price index and it shows that for consumer electricity prices um, in the year to April, they were 51.3% higher than April of last year. And between January 2020 and April of this year, um, average electricity prices have increased by 106.9%. So the bottom line is that we have not yet seen any reduction in electricity prices coming through here, despite the fact that those trends in natural gas prices that you've been talking about have been underway for at least the last six months in a pretty aggressive manner. So, um, you know, I I certainly get the sense that, um, like the case in the UK, um, there certainly is an element of rip-off happening in this country again. But as you say... The dynamics of this are really interesting. The energy companies will argue about buying energy forward and so on. Uh, But as I've said before, the growing profitability of those companies and also the fact that they were so quick to increase prices on the way up that um, I, I just don't buy those arguments. So I do certainly get the sense that consumers are being ripped off in that and small business indeed are being ripped off in that regard. Uh, But there's nothing new about that. It's happening in many facets of the economy. Chris, the final thing I just like to update on, and uh, this may be out of date by the time this podcast is released to the public, but um, and that is the US debt ceiling situation. Um, on Friday morning, it was reported that Kevin McCarthy and Biden are close to a deal and that the deal entails a cap 
on government spending on most items and an agreement to raise the debt ceiling for a two year period. Um, if this is the case and if a deal is done, um, it will have to be passed by the House of Representatives and the Senate. And at the moment, the House has just gone on a week long break. The Senate is not in session. So if a deal is done, both will have to return to vote on the deal. But at least the mood music um, is somewhat more positive at the moment. And it does appear as if we will avoid the um, cataclysmic events that would ensue from a debt default. Fingers crossed, Jim. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Okay, let's wrap it there, Jim, and wish everybody a great weekend. And we'll be return next week. Speak to me. And Chris, I hope you'll be shouting for Monster on Saturday. Of course I will, Jim. Of course I will. Talk to you. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 